0: Hi, and welcome to the eighth episode of the SIS Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon, Senior Research Analyst for Sports Info Solutions. The goal of this podcast is to both inform and entertain. Baseball analytics are cool, interesting, and fun. Our company develops analytics and provides them to MLB teams, media, and fantasy baseball outlets. We'll give you a peek into our world, talk to important people around the industry about analytics storylines, and try to have some cool, interesting fun. On today's show, we'll be joined by John Dewan, the owner of Sports Info Solutions and the original founder of Stats, Inc. We'll also hear from Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer and co-author of the new book, The MVP Machine. He hosts a podcast as well. My colleague Andrew Kine and I will look at some stats from the first half, talk about research the company is doing, we'll answer some listener questions, and much more. We'll start the show with our opening monologue, which we'll call... "Batter up! Finally, we're going to do one of these on an actual batter. Our batter of choice is Mets second baseman and all-star Jeff McNeil. McNeil is hitting three forty nine. If you were watching the Mets and Yankees a week ago, you would have heard a lot of talk about how McNeil hits them where they ain't, and that made him into an all-star. He's the most adept player in baseball at beating defensive shifts. He knows how to hit to the opposite field when the defense tilts to the right side. He knows where to pull the ball when they play him straight up. As Ron Darling said, he's the kind of hitter that baseball has been looking for since shifts became a major part of the game a few years ago. But McNeil isn't just a one-dimensional hitter, he's a complete player. Shifting between second base, third base, left field, and right field, McNeil has four defensive runs saved. He's looked at least capable in each spot. He knows how to execute the fundamentals and the little things, like how to hold a batter to a double instead of allowing a triple. McNeil may be baseball's new Ben Zobrist, a versatile do-everything player whose value is even greater than the sum of his parts. And the sum of his parts is pretty good right now. He's forced the Mets to shift their thinking about him, and he's now one of the cornerstones of the franchise. The Mets need some good news. We've got some good news. We've got the owner of Sports Info Solutions, John Dewan, He'll join us in a second. John Dewan is a pioneer in the field of baseball analytics. He's founded two highly successful baseball statistics companies, Stats, Inc., and Sports Info Solutions. John and Bill James have worked together to invent many statistics. The value of their work can be seen in how the game of baseball has evolved and how it has played in 2019. John, how did you get involved in uh, defensive stats?
1: Well, Mark, this is going to take a while. You got like two hours? (laughs) Go ahead. All right, all right, I'll try to do the short version. All right, so um there's really two I'll, no, let's say there's three main influences in my doing my love for analytics and in particular defensive analytics. So, uh you know, of course, many of us cite Bill James as the guy who influenced us and you know that goes back to the eighties when I was reading his book, and he was doing with sports with baseball numbers what I was doing with insurance numbers as an actuary, and I'm like, "Wait a minute here that would be fun to do baseball analytics so uh so he was you know it a really key influence um but the other two key influences are you know defensive related I've been just you know all over doing defensive analytics my entire life, literally. Um so the other two influences are Stratomatic Baseball. I started playing Stratomatic baseball when I was like thirteen years old. I was known as Bowie DeWan, named after Bowie coon <laughs> the commissioner of baseball back in the day. So Bowie DeWan set up the league and set up the teams and the schedule and we all played stratomatic baseball and uh, the thing about stratomatic baseball is they they do a fantastic job in rating players defensively. And that was always of you know really keen interest to me. How do they do it? How can we use analytics? How can we use the numbers to help improve that system? So that was a key influence. And the other is a ball player by the name of Ozzie Gian. Who joined the White Sox the very year that we started stats? So stats started in literally in the bedroom I'm sitting in in my home. It's uh, now turned into an office. That's where stats got started in 1985, and we took it from there. And we, you know, Ozzy Guillen started playing for the uh, White Sox that year. That was his rookie year. He was such a character, you know, just a hot dog on the field, but his defensive ability was, was something to behold. And I always thought, you know, if we could properly measure defensive analytics, you know, we can find out how good he is and how good some other players are. So that was my you know, those are my influences. And, you know, I started with Project Scoresheet. We started collecting our own stats. Bill James um, and I and a bunch of other people gathered our own stats in the early and mid-'80s um, before we got involved with the company called Stats. And I uh, started doing analytics with even that data. Um, one of the key in- key things that we found was – you know, the number, the best number we had at that time was range factor. That was simply taking put outs and assists and dividing by a number of games played to get a an idea of how many outs and how many assists a player might have. And it was much better than fielding percentage, but it was just a small incremental, you know, upgrade in, in defensive analytics. And uh, so what we started doing with project score sheet data was we found out that, hey, wait a minute right-handers pull the ball in the hall more often than lefties, pull the ball to the left side of the field more often than lefties. And you know what? The team that is facing a lot of left-handed pitchers or a team that has a lot of right-handed hitters is going to put hit more grounders to the shortstop. And so if your p- pitching staff has a lot of lefties, which there were some teams that had that, your shortstop's going to get more than his fair, you know, number of plays. So his range factor will be, will be in, in, you know, inflated. And, uh, so we did some analytics with project score sheet data. Um, but it was, you know, when we got to stats, when we set up stats where we keep in track of zones where players hit the ball, um, so right around nineteen ninety we invented zone ratings, and we could tell you that you know your shortstop would field the ball more often in this zone as a percentage than other shortstops and we could tell you his zone ratings so it was a it was a big big improvement on some of the analytics and then ten years later nineteen ninety nine we invented ultimate zone ratings and with ultimate zone ratings, we even got more fine in determining where balls were hit and we're able to quantify it in an even better way. Um, And then we sold stats. And I, in the early 2000s, Steve Moyer and I started Baseball Info Solutions. And then uh, literally about 10 years, after that, around 2010, we, we invented, actually 2009, we invented defensive run saved. So, you know, doing analytics in baseball has really been key to me. But, you know, my love of the numbers and my love of defense, you know, has really want, made me want to explore defense and, and try to really good, get a really good handle on it.
0: Does Ozzie Guillen know the influence that he's had?
1: Uh, again. Uh, man he is my favorite player favorite baseball character of all time in so many ways and i've got several stories but i'm going to share my favorite story about ozzy and defense so you know Ozzie's a great defensive player and we did our best to quantify and you know we had our zone ratings in the 90s and there were several years where he was best at zone ratings he was always near the top And so we had a way to quantify his numbers using zone ratings. But zone ratings came out in this book called the baseball scoreboard book had a publication run of three or 4,000 people. Not many people knew about zone ratings and there was, you know, the internet was just getting started. There wasn't, people didn't know much about it. So it wasn't well known. And so when we got started at Baseball Info Solutions, we came up with the Fielding Bible, and the Fielding Bible started out as a book that we provided to our team clients. So this was in the early 2000s. We'd you know go around to our team clients and share our defensive analytics, and you know show them that hey, there's a better way to measure defense, and so we're meeting with the White Sox. The White Sox has been a client of mine, going back to stats and since 1985, and then early on client with Baseball Info Solutions. So this is 2005 spring training. Now they went on to win the world championship that year. So that was a pretty cool year, but I also remember it for this meeting with the White Sox. So this was spring training. The meeting with the front office staff, um, it was, I think it was Dan Fabian and somebody else, and we're sitting in the cafeteria. It's about, a game was just about ready to start, but we're in the cafeteria having a meeting, and I i break open the team version of the Fielding Bible. And I'm starting to share with them, you know, some of the numbers and how it works and stuff like that and find out the game has been rained out. So all of a sudden, all the players and the coaches and managers come trudging in from the field and they're sitting all over the cafeteria. And you know, we're trying to have this meeting and now it's like this uh, cacophony of noises and sounds and people talking and yucking and, and having a good time. And it just so happens that Ozzie sits at the next table and he's sitting there with some of his coaching staff and he happens to have the seat that's closest to our seat you know whether he strategically took that seat because he saw us talking I don't know but he's sitting there and I just happened to be in the middle of presenting the fielding bible so it looked like he was listening And because he he wasn't like directly staring, but it looked like he was kind of, his head was kind of turned and he was listening. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm talking about how to evaluate shortstops for defense and, and he turns around, he says, and now I'm going to clean this up, (laughs) (laughs) but, but um, I'll, I'll I'll try to use a word where you'll get the idea, but, um, as he is well known for use of colorful words, especially in the clubhouse and on the field and stuff like that. Um uh but he you know he was great when he did interviews and stuff like that. But uh when he's <laughs> in a private situation, he definitely was colorful. And so he clearly was listening and he turns over and he says, Let me see that blankety blank thing. And I'm sitting there, oh my gosh, he's got a He's gonna rip me a new one. I'm I'm gonna be on the floor, and he's gonna be like, "This stuff is crap. What are you doing with this?" But he's like, "Let me see that blankety blank thing." And uh, he looks at it for a second. He just says, "Man, if they had these blankety blank stats when I was blankety blank playing, I would have been the best blankety blank player who ever played this blankety blank game. It was so funny, and it was." such a you know like reward that here's a guy that was known for his defense and he can appreciate even just listening for like 2 or 3 minutes to how the analytics were done he could immediately appreciate it and realize hey this if it had been applied to me it would have shown you know that I was really good too so it was one of my favorite moments of all time in in doing baseball analytics
0: What advice would you give to someone who wanted to uh, create the next version of a stat?
1: Well, you know, it's, you know, I guess the advice I would have is, you know, when we have a lot of young guys who come to work for our company and, you know, the most important thing is, you know, do the research, start looking at the numbers, Look at what interests you. You know, I focused on base, on, on defense, but, you know, there's so many different aspects of the game. And, and you know, there's so many good analytics, uh, good analytical writers out there and good analysts out there who, you know, got into the numbers, learned how to manipulate them. Um, you know, get out there and, and look at all the analytic sites and, and find out what other people are doing, but then just jump in and, and do your thing, you know like I said, I've been like inventing these defensive systems. You know, we did one with project score sheet and then we did zone ratings and then we did ultimate zone ratings, which by the way, Mitchell Lickman has done a fantastic job in taking what I started at stats and then taking it to a whole new level. So that's a wonderful system as, as well as our own uh defensive run saved. Um, so you know, every ten years or so, we're inventing a new defensive system. So let me turn it on you, Mark. What what new defensive system uh, <laughs> is Baseball Info Solutions working on?
0: Uh, I don't think we can give away any company secrets.
1: Uh, <laughs> All right. Not what yet, do- but it'll be out soon, I'm sure. Sure. All right. What about um,
0: the uh, the explosion of shifting? Uh, what's your your overall perspective on that? It's up another thirty uh, percent this year.
1: Well, it's. Uh, It's another thing that, you know, so so cool to have had some influence in on that. Um, So, um, you know, it's it's funny because I was on vacation recently and ran into a guy hiking. You know, I'm hiking with our friends, and he's hiking with his family. And he's like, you know, he just comes and says hi. And you're John one. I think I heard that name in baseball. And I'm like, yeah, I do some stuff here and there, you know. (laughs) And uh, he's like, um, so what? What do you? What, what's your specialty? What do you guys do a lot? And I'm like defense, and you know the the craze and shifting now is, you know, you can blame some of that on our company. And he's like, shifting? I hate shifting. <laughs> it's not real baseball, you know. And so that's, you know, some of the complaints that goes that go on. But you know, this stems back to my. You know, days, you know, I, I mentioned about doing work with project score sheet data and saying that, you know, right handers pull the ball to shortstop more often, you know, and, and the shortstops get more chances because of it and lefties pull it to second base more often. And when I was at stats, I looked at the numbers and it was like the average right hander pulls the ball to the left to second over 70% of the time. And similarly, left-handers pull the ball to the right a second over 70% of the time. And it dawned on me, it's like, well, 70%, that's, you know, you got four infielders, three of them are 75%. You know, if you got a hitter pulling over 75% of his baseballs to one side or the other, doesn't make sense to position 75% of your fielders to that side or the other. And um, so it was actually right then after the White Sox won the world championship and you know, they're our clients, and I was able to go to literally most of the games and just loved it. It was that season 2006 after that. And I said, why don't we develop some software that shows which hitters develop, which hitters hit the ball You know pull the ball more often you know and let's eliminate things like fly balls to the outfield because you know infielders aren't going to get that or uh for outfielders when we're determining where balls hit let's eliminate the home runs let's even eliminate you know like a line drive single that is no one can ever field. let's not count that so we developed some software which we call bisd that shows how often players pull the ball, where do they pull it. We have, you know, different colored zones. And you're starting to see this kind of graphic um, on TV broadcast now. Um, But back then we were providing it in software package for major league teams and came out in 2007. So we're showing major league teams in 2007, and we're showing them in 2008 and 2009 and 2010 and 2011 all these years we've been showing this software that shows where players tend to hit the ball and how play, there should be way more players who, who get the shift, get the Ted Williams shift. You know, back in uh, the mid-2000s, there were about six players who would get shifted, you know, Jim Tomey and David Ortiz and a few others. and But, there's so many more players that our software said should be shifted. So all those years we would show the teams, we'd meet with them in spring training, we'd meet with them during the season and no one really cared. We had two customers (laughs) during that whole time between 2006 and 2011, we had two customers who who wanted uh, to get our shift data who would shift a little bit more. But there was one team that said in 2012, Hey, now, wait a minute. Our research is showing this and we're going to start shifting. So Joe Madden, Tampa Bay Rays, 2012, maybe it was 11 that he started it. They're shifting, you know, 200 times a year an unheard of number. And you know what they're having success. So in, uh, I think it was the spring of 2012. Um, Let's see. Yeah, it was the spring of 2012. It was the first Sabre Analyst Conference. And we did a presentation showing how this software showed, which hitters pulled the ball ball more often. But we went a step further and said, all right, how many runs is it saving for your team? How effective is it? Is it cutting down the batting average You know, of these guys that should be pulled who are getting shifted. And sure enough, our analytics said, hey, you're cutting 30 points off their batting average and it's making a difference. So I think at that conference, there were probably about 10 teams in attendance. And then we met with over 20 of the 30 major league teams and shifting that year. You know, I like to take some credit for the analytics, but, you know, the Tampa Bay Rays and Joe Madden shifting more often. That's what got people to understand that, hey, shifting can help you. And every year, our analytics show that shifting works. And every year, we've been saying, you got to do it more often. You got to do it more often. There's more guys. There's more guys. Just keep doing it, man. (laughs) And finally, they're starting to get the picture. There are now some situations where teams are shifting when they shouldn't we actually did some analytics last last year that that showed that all right maybe you shouldn't be shifting some of these guys um but they're still leaving a lot of runs on the table because there's still a lot of guys even though even though shifting is up again there's still a lot of guys that some teams are not shifting i think most of the good teams are, are shifting on all the right guys but some teams still are having some problems not figuring out which teams to shift, which which players to shift.
0: John, I want to finish up uh, by circling back to something you talked about earlier, your lifelong uh, interest in Stratomatic. I remember I was at a baseball card convention many years ago uh, when two people were playing against each other in like a little tournament, and uh, one guy beat the other, and he said to the other guy after the game was done, you didn't count the walks on your pitcher's card. You have to do that. Uh, so that you, you, you're you up to speed in terms of the potential that he could walk a guy with the bases loaded, which was what happened to end that game. Do you have any tips for Stratomatic players and how to win a championship, build a great team?
1: <laughs> I'll tell you what I used to do, and now I get numbers from Strato that save me the effort. But I used to sit down with my computer and literally input all the hits and walks on every player's card – hits doubles, triples, homers, walks on every player's card so I could rate them based on the probabilities as to how good that card was. Not necessarily, you know, there's, their cards are generally based on how good the players were, but the cards themselves, especially when it's broken down lefty versus righty, can make a, a world of difference. You know, so one season, John Carlos Stanton couldn't hit lefties. You know, he just had it against the Carver did that so you, you know you need to know that and so I came up with Armula back in back in the 80s that took the numbers on a guy's car and I said I'm gonna take three times slugging plus three times on base percentage plus one time batting average and that was kind of the precursor of ops it was my version of ops that i used to calculate straddle cards and i've been in a league for many many years and won a lot of the a lot of them based on my little formula for evaluating player cards and and both hitters and pitchers pitchers did the exact same way there's no difference on how you evaluate pitchers and hitters uh for strato and so it's basically knowing what the cards are telling you platooning properly um just like baseball you got to know which players can hit lefties and which can't um and and strato it's even more important because the card itself tells you exactly how the probabilities are going to come out hitting lefties and righties
0: John, so many stories, so many tips, uh, lots of great stuff. Uh, We will have you on again at some point. Uh, Thank you for taking the time to join us.
1: All right, Mark, a real pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Yep.
0: Hi, I'm Corey March of Sports Info Solutions, and I'm here to tell you about SISBets.com. SISBets.com is an advanced prop betting information tool powered by Sports Info Solutions. Now you can leverage our proven projections model to find value against the odds. You're never more than a few clicks away from knowing which pitcher may surpass his strikeout prop or whether your favorite running back projects
2: to go over his rushing yards total. Just choose the type of bet, the player, and enter the money lines to the SIS Bets recommendation. That's SISBets.com.
0: Ben Lindberg is one of the most well-rounded baseball writers and podcasters going today. He is as comfortable talking with players from long ago, like Ned Garver and Johnny O'Brien, as he is doing comprehensive dissections of the latest analytic developments. He's a writer for The Ringer, a co-host of the podcast Effectively Wild, and co-author of The MVP Machine with Travis Sawchick. We're glad to have him today. Ben, I want to talk about an MVP to start. When you write the sequel to this book, and when you write about Cody Bellinger, what are you going to write about regarding how he made himself into this kind of player?
2: Well, my co-author on the book, Travis Sacek, has in a way already written that sequel. He wrote an article for five thirty eight about Bellinger's improvements this year, and I think it does very much fit into the type of data-driven changes that we talk about being so prevalent today. I think Bellinger is a good example of that because he worked with Robert Vanskoyak and Brent Brown, a couple of Craig Wallenbrock disciples, a, a cutting edge, unorthodox hitting coach. And now Vanskoyek is working as the major league hitting coach for the Dodgers. And Brent Brown is working as the team's hitting strategist. So, they've sort of embraced these outsider ideas and coaching techniques. And Bellinger was kind of turned on to these things by being on the same team as Justin Turner and Chris Taylor, you know, guys who have remade themselves by going to see outside coaches and going for more of a flyball oriented approach. And, Bellinger, I think, to his credit, despite his talent and some of his success in the past, was really interested in getting better, and he worked with the two coaches I mentioned over this past offseason extensively, and worked with video and data and swing mapping, and he made some changes to his swing path and his setup, and it's all driven by the data and by the information, so I think that's sort of the next phase of this player development revolution that Travis and I chronicled in the book. Initially, it started with guys like Turner and J.D. Martinez and Rich Hill, who were kind of on their way out of the league seemingly or were just doing whatever they could to stay there, now it's migrated to guys who are already really talented, top prospects who've had success, but have seen these other players benefit from some of these techniques and have figured, well, I might be good already, but I could be even better. So I think Bellinger is a good example of what can happen when a really talented player puts some of these principles into practice.
0: The data drives the moves, but it's amazing. I guess that what's happened in baseball the last couple of years is kind of a testament to the power of word of mouth, too, right?
2: Yeah, very much so. These guys like Turner and JD Martinez, I, I think we called them Johnny Apple Swings in the book, just because <laughs> wherever they go from clubhouse to clubhouse, they're kind of evangelists for this. These techniques, this information—if something benefited them in general—they're happy to share their insights. They almost become extra coaches who can help players tinker with their swings or with their pitch selection if they're pitchers. And so, I think that word of mouth is very powerful because it's one thing when a GM tells you something or someone up in the front office does, but when it's a peer, when it's a teammate who's saying, hey, I went to see this coach, hey, I started using this type of information, and you can see the benefits on the field, naturally players are going to look around and wonder what happened to this guy over the offseason. He was not that great last year. Suddenly he's come back, and it's like he's you know, a kid coming back from summer vacation with a growth spurt or something. Suddenly he's hitting all these home runs. What did he do? And then that passes from player to player, and players are eager and hungry for this information. And when they see other guys get better and land large contracts, They want to do the same themselves.
0: In the promotion for this book, there's a lot of talk about hitting. Jose Altuve and Mookie Betts actually have uh, their own uh, chapters and stories, essentially. And pitching Trevor Bauer is certainly a focal point of the book. But how do you find the teams and players have remade themselves defensively?
2: Yeah, that's been a bit of a tough nut to crack. Of course, we know all about shifting and positioning, and that's a little bit different from what we're talking about in the book. That has led to improvements in run prevention, but that's more of an in-game tactic as opposed to a player development thing for the most part, I would say, although there's a component of that too, whether it's you know getting guys in the minors prepared to play that way when they get to the majors by exposing them to it early. But I think improving the actual defensive skills, that can be tougher. The best example of that... That, I think, is catcher framing, which, of course, we've all been fascinated by for the past several years. That was something that old school baseball people would tell you going back a century that that mattered. But the early wave of sabermetricians couldn't detect it, kind of discounted the idea that it really was that valuable. But the new technology that tracks pitches enables us to quantify exactly what that's worth. And it turns out a lot. So we've seen many examples of guys who have gone from bad to good or from good to great by really incorporating the technology into their preparation. You know, someone like Tyler Flowers with the Braves, who's been so successful at that, or someone like Jorge Alfaro last year with the Phillies, or with the Astros, you have guys like Max Stasi, Jason Castro. I mean, these are guys who understood that they had a deficiency when it came to framing and they were willing to study the video, study the data, see where they weren't getting calls and see what the guys who do get calls do and what they could do differently. So I think that's the best example. And we've seen, I think, the quality of receiving improve across the league and the gap between the best and worst catchers and best and worst framing teams has really shrunk over the past decade. I don't think that's a coincidence. It's driven by the data As far as other fielding techniques, I think that may be a a next frontier because we mentioned in the book that some teams are maybe starting to train high-speed cameras on fielders, and so the same mechanical improvements that you can get from pointing those cameras at hitters and pitchers to break down their mechanics – you can maybe start to do the same thing with fielding and make movements more efficient. But I think that's a more difficult challenge just because there's so many movements associated with fielding that it's a little more complicated.
0: He did a chapter, one of the chapters on Mookie Betts and his making a better swing. But in the first half of 2019, he's not quite uh, hitting like he did in 2018. Uh, Do things like that just happen, or is there something to the difficulty of finding things that are new, like these things that are being introduced to him, that you can stick to year after year?
2: Yeah, we've definitely seen that a player who makes a mechanical breakthrough doesn't just get to keep that improvement in perpetuity, necessarily. Some guys do, but other guys will regress after they seemingly discover something that makes them a lot better. We have a chapter in the book about guys who've tried to apply some of these principles and it just didn't work for them or it stopped working for them after a while. I think Yonder Alonso is another really good example. He was just recently DFA'd by the White Sox and he was a guy who fancrafted Dave Cameron called the poster boy for the flyball revolution in 2017 when he really seemed to break out and since then he's gone all the way back to what he was and that can be a perplexing thing. You know, sometimes it's a matter of the player just not being able to repeat The new and improved mechanics, you know, it's one thing to do it for a year. It's another thing to do it for multiple years and across multiple off seasons. Sometimes there is a nagging injury that we don't know about that might be hampering a player's performance or an off the field issue that might be influencing his mindset. Or sometimes the league adjusts, and the hitter or pitcher finds something that works really well for a while, but then there is a a counter-adjustment, and you have to then make a counter-counter-adjustment and see if you can (laughs) figure out something that will get you back to that new, more elite level.
0: It's basically.
2: Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Mookie is obviously still having a very productive season, yep. but he's not reaching the heights that he was last year when Justin Turner, uh, among others, or J.D. Martinez, among others, helped him, uh, you know, implement some some new mechanics. And he went to Doug Latta, the, the hitter who had uh, coached, the, the coach who had uh, instructed Justin Turner. So we'll see whether Mookie can get back to those heights or whether he will merely just be a, a really excellent player, but perhaps not the MVP
0: Let's talk a couple other things related to 2019. What's the most interesting thing you've seen in a game so far this season?
2: Well, you know, I think it's actually something probably a bit related to your stats. And it's something that I wrote about earlier this year at the Ringer, which is just the profusion of home run robberies this year, which I think we've had 35 so far this season where just about on pace to tie the record from last year, which was sixty five, and maybe with the home runs flying even more as the weather warms up, we will perhaps break that record, which has just been increasing in recent years as the home run rate has increasing. And that seems obvious in retrospect, but it wasn't really something that I had made the connection for until I noticed, you know, a whole bunch of of home run robberies being made within a a week or so. And I think you may have written about it at that time too. And you know Jackie Bradley Jr. made an amazing one, and Ramon Laureano made an amazing one. Of course, it makes sense that the more long, deep fly balls you'd have, the better the baseball is carrying – the more opportunities you would have to rob home runs. And I thought that was really exciting because there's no better play in baseball, I don't think, than the home run robbery. And we talk and fret so much about trends in the game and too many strikeouts and are there too many home runs. And I think this is the one thing that we can all agree on. Well, more home run robberies, I think that's probably a net (laughs) positive. So no matter how much we're wringing our hands about everything else, that's, that's one silver lining.
0: It's Lorenzo Kane leading the majors with three home run robberies this season. Is there a player whose first half we should appreciate more than the numbers might indicate?
2: Yeah, you know, I would say JT Realmuto, who I know is an All Star. He's actually the Phillies' lone All Star this year, and, and I'm not saying he's, you know, the number one bounce back candidate or that he has been the guy whose surface stats have most underperformed or diverged from his more advanced stats. But I think that his season, even though it's now an All Star one, is seen as somewhat disappointing because his powers down, his on base is down. He's been, you know, a roughly league average hitter this year, which would be a, a considerable step down for him, but I think there are a few things going on there that would be good to appreciate for Phillies fans who are maybe a little overwhelmed by one of their big winter acquisitions. First, he has caught the most games in the majors, so he's been a, a real workhorse for them. But also, I think if you look at some of the advanced stats, you know, the expected Woba, let's say, he does seem to have underperformed that. So he's hit the ball a little bit better than his traditional stats would indicate. But also, we were just talking about the potential to improve framing and receiving. And he seems to be the latest guy to have done that. You know, it's not the most dramatic change, but. He's having his best defensive season, his best framing season, and that's probably not a coincidence because the Phillies catching coach, Craig Driver, he was a college coach who really helped Jorge Alfaro last year revamp his framing using data and video, and I would imagine, and I've read uh, articles to the effect, that Real Muto has uh, done the same thing, and he was someone who that used to be the knock on his game. You know, he was really well-rounded. He was a great base runner. He was a great hitter, but he couldn't really frame, and now he can frame. He's an above average frame or two. So there's no hole in his game. And even though his season hasn't stood out quite so much, in terms of value, he's probably going to end up close to where he's been the last couple of years because of that defensive improvement.
0: Ben, thank you for validating uh, a monologue that I wrote in episode six of our podcast about (laughs) about Real Muto's excellence this season. All right, uh, one or two others. Um, You could give an award to any player in baseball this season for any sort of analytic achievement. Who would you give the first ever Ben Lindbergh Analytic Award to?
2: (laughs) Well, the first thing I'd do is just rename the award and call it the Mike Trout (laughs) Award (laughs) for Analytics Excellence. And I'd give it to Mike Trout. I know this is a very obvious (laughs) answer. That's a cop-out. It is. I know it is. And yet, we don't really have an award for just the most, you know, we have an award that says the most valuable player but it's not always given to the player who has been the best at baseball because it's called the most valuable. We always have this, you know, standard conversation about, well, do you have to be on a playoff team to be valuable? How can you be valuable if you're not going to the playoffs? And that has cost Mike Trout MVP awards in his career and may cost him more. Who knows? Uh, He may be so good this season that it can't cost him one, but the angels are, you know, in their standard position where they're probably not going to be there at the end of the year. So I think we just need to name the award after Mike Trout for just the best player in baseball. You know, we have Silver Slugger for best hitter, but we don't just have best player. And I think that award, you would name it after Mike Trout. I think as Sam Miller and I have discussed on Effectively Wild recently, there's just such a a symbiotic relationship between Mike Trout and Wins Above Replacement where he's almost identified with that stat because the two kind of came of age at the right time at the same time. War, I think, helps us appreciate Mike Trout more. Mike Trout helps us appreciate war more. So I don't know if you give the Mike Trout Award for analytics excellence to just the war leader. Maybe that's a bit boring, but I think that would be a a big input in it. And we just need an award for Mike Trout to win every year (laughs) if he's not going to get the MVP.
0: All right. An acceptable cop-out. Last question. (laughs) We've had uh, the different people on this show that have come on as guests. We've asked them at the end to invent stats. David Cohn wanted catcher framing with umpire and batter. We gave that to him. Joe Sheehan gave us heartbeat above replacement. Mike Farron devised something related to who's best at getting into and producing in favorable counts. What stat would Ben Lindbergh like to invent?
2: I think I would want a stat that I'm going to call practice plus. It tells you how good a player is at practicing, how good he is at incorporating some of this new information that we've been talking about. I mean, this is the theme of the MVP machine. This has been the theme of much of this interview, how receptive are players to this new information? How willing are they to put it into practice? And how efficiently do they practice? That's something we write about a lot in the book. You know, traditionally in baseball, you've had bullpen sessions, you've had batting practice. It doesn't really test players' abilities. You're just sort of throwing, you're swinging without much of a purpose. And the way to get better at baseball and to get better at anything is to try to do something that's a little bit beyond your present abilities, to do something that's kind of uncomfortable, and to get that measurable feedback that players can get now via sensors and you know, batted ball trackers and the like. And so I think now we're in an era where your makeup or the the practice component of your makeup is actually more important than it's ever been because i think that is dictating players outcomes more than raw talent you know raw talent still matters of course but in the past that dictated almost everything because you know if you were a a pitcher who didn't throw hard or a, a hitter who wasn't that big or something it was hard to overcome those flaws Whereas today, at times, you can use information, data, technology to maximize your strengths, minimize your flaws, but only if you're willing to accept that information. And, you know, I think this is kind of akin to a makeup grade on a scouting report, but I don't think those have ever been particularly accurate because it's hard to assess that. So I want a stat that actually tells me how good a player is at practicing, how Open to this new information he is and, and how willing he is to work to improve because I think if we had that, it would improve all of our projections for all players, you know, so many guys who have a certain ceiling according to the scouts and then end up breaking through that ceiling. It ends up being because they were willing to work really hard or work in a really intelligent way or be open to this new information that's out there now. And that's something that we just can't really see from afar. So I think that would make us much smarter and better able to project players if we had practice plus.
0: We can call it uh, as a supplement, Omar, open-mindedness above replacement. Sure, I like that too. (laughs) Ben Lindbergh is the co-author of The MVP Machine with Travis Sochick, the co-host of Effectively Wild, and a writer for The Ringer. We thank him for taking the time to join us today. Thanks, Ben. We'll catch you down the road. My pleasure.
2: Good talking to you, Mark. Yep. You're out.
0: We move on to our segment called Instant Reply. That's where we look at projects we're working on and articles we've written. We'll share some leaderboards. Andrew Kind from R&D joins me now. We're going to start with something that we did with Ben Lindbergh. We're going to pick an award uh, for the first half. Uh, Andrew and I have scoured the
3: numbers. We've
0: gone through the nitty-gritty details. Andrew's up first.
3: Sure. So I think one thing that we do that is kind of unique is we have a command rating in terms of how well Uh, pitchers command their pitches and we do so by charting not only the pitch locations for each pitcher but also where the catcher was set up and where the catcher's mitt is so in combining those two things and looking at how far each pitch is from the mitt we have something of a proxy for a pitcher's command and for the first half the pitcher who was essentially closest to the mitt uh the most on average was Masahiro Tanaka of the Yankees Uh, followed by Zach Davies, Zach Granke, Patrick Corbin, and Wade Miley. Uh, Granke seems to always be in this top five every year, so I would probably name the award after him.
0: (laughs) It's also something that you could name the Maddox, even though the Maddox already has a name for a complete game under 100 pitches. All right, uh, I was going to go in a slightly different direction. I was looking for catchers that had, I guess, what I would call proper balance, uh, and that means guys that are both good at pitch framing, and pitch blocking, uh, there is a school of thought that it's difficult to be good at both, uh, that in trying to frame pitches, sometimes you might have a pitch or two go by you, uh, and that might cost you as a catcher. Uh, the catcher who is best at this is not the catcher who's at the top in defensive runs saved, uh, but Roberto Perez of the Indians has excellent uh, what we would call catcher balance. He has four defensive runs saved for his pitch blocking, And he has five defensive runs saved for his pitch framing. And I like that. And Roberto Perez actually ranks among the leaders in defensive runs saved, which uh, we will run through right now. As we said, we will run through some first-half leaderboards. Your top bunch, I guess, so to speak. Austin Hedges and Cody Bellinger lead the way with 19. Nick Ahmed, shortstop for the Diamondbacks, third with 15, followed by Miguel Rojas at 13, Roberto Perez, Trevor Story, Kevin Kiermaier at 11, and then a slew of guys at 10, Max Kepler, JT Realmuto, Marwin Gonzalez, Lorenzo Cain, Alex Verdugo, Max Muncy, Byron Buxton, Hunter Renfro, and uh, yeah, and Hunter Renfro, he's the last one. All right, what's the most interesting one among the leaders?
3: I thought the interesting ones were the catchers. Hedges, most notably, all the way at the top, is is... Super interesting to me. Uh, Most of his has come from strike zone run saved and pitch framing. He has 12. Uh, Roberto Perez, who you just mentioned, has been a good combination of both framing and pitch blocking. And then Real Muto has been really good for the Phillies. Even if his bat hasn't necessarily been there, he's been a plus on the defensive side.
0: Yeah, I think one thing that you could say about this leaderboard is that it's a testament to the value, the defensive value of a catcher. I'm going to move to shortstop, which is the other position that seems to rack up defensive runs save. And it'll be trade rumors had a good note the other day about a player that could have sneaky value, he could be one of the top defensive players traded uh, around the trade deadline. That's Miguel Rojas of the Marlins. He's fourth with 13 defensive runs saved. The nice thing about him is not only is he sure-handed at short, but you could put him in other positions if you needed to. You could put him at either of the corners and not uh, necessarily fear anything. We move on to team run saved and we can run through the team run save leaderboards. We'll start with the National League. The Dodgers lead all of baseball with 93 defensive runs saved. They are on pace, if you could say on pace, they are on pace for the highest total that we've ever had in the time that we've compiled the stat. The Diamondbacks second at 68, the Reds third at 47, the Cardinals next at 43, and the Giants fifth at 37. The Mets dead last at, 60, at negative 67. We will run through the American League. The Astros lead with 65, followed by the Twins with 61, the Rays with 48, the Indians with 29, four very good teams there, and then the Royals with 21. Last place in the American League is the Orioles with negative 68. What was the most interesting thing from the first half there?
3: I liked how the Twins rate really well. I feel like a lot of what I've been reading and hearing about the Twins is how many home runs they've hit and how many runs they scored. Uh, but they've also been really good defensively. They have a really good defensive outfield led by Byron Buxton.
0: He's fantastic. He's continued that uh, this season. I had said uh, the other day that if there was a defensive derby, I think he would win it. Uh, I'm going to say the St. Louis Cardinals, and they're 43. If you took Jose Martinez out of the mix, you might have uh, as good a defensive team as there could be. Uh, Colton Wong's been very good. Paul DeYoung is better than you think. Goldschmidt at first base, people know that he's pretty great. And Harrison Bader in center field uh, has typically been Very, very good for the St. Louis Cardinals. Let's look at shift runs saved. And I'm looking at this in the National League first. The Dodgers with 33. The Diamondbacks with 24. The Cardinals with 18. The Reds with 15. And the Giants with 10. Moving over to the American League. The Astros are the best. I don't think that's particularly a surprise at 31. Followed by the Indians at 17. The Indians don't shift very often. The Twins and Rays with 15 each, and then the Blue Jays with 14.
3: I thought it was interesting that the Yankees rank last in this stat. They're at minus 5. So they've actually, by this metric, lost runs to the shift. When I did the best-positioned infields article for our blog uh, last month, they rated fairly well, and I would probably consider them one of the more analytical teams like the Astros or the Dodgers. So um, something maybe that we can dig into a little bit more in, in why they've lost runs in this area.
0: Yeah, I was going so I was going to originally say the Diamondbacks, I'm actually going to shift to the Indians who have been uh, very, very good this year, uh, which is a little surprising given that they don't shift with great frequency, but I think their analytics department is really sharp in this regard. They know how to get the most out of their guys. And one guy who, he just isn't a good defensive player when you play him straight up, but seems to be more valuable when you move him around. Jason Kipnis uh, has been good in shifts for the Indians this season. All right, so transitioning to hard hit rate, uh, we wanted to look at the hitters and share the hitters who have the highest percentage of at bats with a hard hit ball, and your top ten in that: Cody Bellinger, Justin Turner, Christian Yelich, Anthony Rendon, Matt Olson, Freddie Freeman, Alex Verdugo, seventh. Nelson Cruz, Josh Bell, and rounding it out, Carlos Santana, tenth. Cody Bellinger tops at forty-three percent. Justin Turner and Yelich, forty-two percent of their at bats end in a hard hit ball. Very impressive.
3: I thought it was notable that Matt Olson was so high given that early in the season he was fighting off a handmade injury, came back in early May, and typically that injury saps the power from players who, who come back. But since May 7th, when he returned, he has 19 home runs, which ranks third uh, in the league, tied for third with Josh Bell and Hunter Renfro uh, in that period, and they are behind Pete Alonso and Mike Trout. So pretty good company.
0: Yeah, the problem that Polson has is that when he hits the ball on the ground, it's been, at least so far this season, it's mostly been an automatic out. Ninth on the list, Josh Bell, 38%, probably the most improved hitter in baseball. And that, I think, is a good topic uh, of future discussion as well. Uh, Pirates' first baseman has figured it out, Uh, as has, interestingly, Tony LaStella, who's 13th at 37.8%. Unfortunately, LaStella is suffering the injury. He's out for uh, a pretty good while. But those two guys have been uh, very impressive in their improvements over uh, the course of the last... Couple of seasons. On the pitcher side, the top 10 pitchers, and we will run through those right now Steven Strasberg first at 18%, followed by Lucas Gelito, Dylan Bundy, Chris Sale, fifth is Hugh Darvish, sixth, Eduardo Rodriguez, then Noah Syndergaard, Blake Snell, Garrett Cole, and Kenta Maida. This is a weird list. The pitchers that allowed the lowest percentage of hard hit balls per at bat.
3: Yeah, so you had mentioned Josh Bell being one of the most improved hitters, and I think Lucas Giolito is one of the most improved pitchers. And during the All-Star festivities the other day on MLB Network, he uh, was talking about how he changed his arm action um, before the season and how he's a little bit shorter to the plate now, which I thought was really interesting to see. And it's paid off. Opponents are only hitting 201 against his fastball this year. They hit 274 last year against it and his secondary pitches have been good as well 180 against sliders and 172 against changeups a really good first half for Giolito.
0: Yeah, the changeup has been especially valuable for him uh this season. Uh and uh, for I was going to bring up one of the strange outliers on this list Dylan Bundy who's ERA and who's FIP and nothing really matches with the hard hit rate. And the problem for Dylan Bundy is that if he gives up a hard hit ball it's it's either going to hit the wall in Camden Yards or Fenway Park or Yankee Stadium or wherever he's, he's pitching, or it's going to go over the fence. Uh, the fact that he's third makes me think that there's something still good in that arm uh, and he's just playing on a, on a really bad team. He's third. you Darvish is fifth. You Darvish tends to either fool you really badly or get hammered. Uh, and I just think that uh, it was interesting to see those two names uh, at the top of the list, guys that are not having good seasons. Let's flip to listener mail. We got a question from Chris Boddy via Twitter. If you could go back in time to 1960 and pick one stat from today to use that other teams didn't know about,
3: what would it be? So I, I really like this question. And there's probably, I mean, I would say almost any like analytical thing that we look at now would have been very advantageous to look at, say, 50 years ago. I would probably say just something like weighted on base average or weighted runs created and being able to have a better understanding of where runs come from and how each event impacts uh, run scoring rather than just looking at batting average or something very simple, I think would be a pretty big advantage back then.
0: So one thing that was known in the 1960s that was that you shifted Willie McCovey. It's like the one name, you know, Ted Williams, you shift him in the 40s. You shift Willie McCovey in the 1960s. I'd like to know who else was shift-worthy. What, what do the, the metrics say about who else was shift-worthy in the 1960s? Should Mickey Mantle have been shifted? Uh, should uh, Willie Mays, should the defense against him have been Uh, set up differently although in both those cases they can certainly hit the ball out of the park but all right someone with speed how about someone like Lou Brock uh, would you have shifted uh, that player all right last thing on our agenda here it is time for the ridiculous numbers of the day
1: ridiculous
3: numbers of the day so the home run has been a huge part of baseball this year and I wanted to do something uh, with regard to that so I looked at five years ago, 2014, before the All-Star break, there were 12 players who had hit 20-plus home runs uh, before the break. This year, there have been 34 players with 20-plus home runs. That's obviously pretty arbitrary. Pretty nice. Yeah, it's it's an arbitrary endpoint of 20. If you look at 19, there's like another seven or eight guys. But at the end of the day, it's ridiculous, and the ball is flying
0: (laughs) a lot of talk about that during the all-star break all right this is something that i looked up well a couple minutes ago so it's a little bit uh rushed i maybe haven't formulated it fully but in looking at the pitch run values on changeups, the most of the pitch types uh i don't want to say status quo has been maintained but there are little changes uh in the pitch value uh, of each of those pitches Change-ups have a really big uh, jump in terms of effectiveness for pitchers. Uh, the way that it works is it's like a runs below or runs above average stat. Uh, and from a hitter's perspective, the previous three years, the net results against change-up were positive. Uh, but this year, pitch values against change-ups are 94 runs below average, which is, well, ridiculous. Uh, It means that hitters aren't hitting them for some reason. Uh, And there are a number of guys that have effective ones. We mentioned Jolito earlier. Uh, There's certainly a good number of them that could be studied more closely. Uh, But the change change in run value, pretty large. And it'd be uh, interesting to see if that holds up after the All-Star break. And that wraps up this episode of the SIS Baseball Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. For our guests, John DeWan and Ben Lindbergh, our producer Matt Manicharian, and my colleague Andrew Kine. This is Mark Simon. We'll see you in a couple of weeks.